Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, December 6th. Given that it is December at this point of the year, a lot more in the storyline and controversy department than results. There are a few tennis results sprinkled in here and there, which is crazy to think about given that it's month 12 of the year. But the main focus for the tennis world, you know, the shifting in the offseason of coaching changes, the idea where are players training, what are they doing, who Who's injured? Are they getting closer to being healthy? And then, of course, you know, the extraneous stuff. Are there any exhibition matches? Are there documentaries coming up? Well, we as fans were treated to one of those instances and one of the biggest storylines as tennis fans over the past two years, unfortunately, has been the story of Andy Murray and his quest to return to health, his quest to end his career the way we saw the first, you know, 11, 10, 11, 12 years of it on that big four form, compete with his contemporaries, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, get back to those heights. You see those three guys all competing for slams. He's obviously uh, been so frustrated with hip uh, issues over the past two years. And he talked about that and more in his newest documentary, Andy Murray Resurfacing, which you can find on Amazon. And joining me to discuss that documentary, to discuss you know all of the things we can take away from getting the chance to look firsthand at what the past two years have been like for an Andy Murray. You, of course, will recognize the work he does as a reporter for The Guardian, his former work for The Ringer, covering the sport of tennis. His most recent piece, Andy Murray Dunblane, uh, titled Andy Murray Dunblane, when, was when I was nine. Then our parents divorced. Of course, it's the story of the former, how the former world number one opens up about his difficult childhood and how tennis became an escape for him. And a returning guest to our mini break podcast, Tumani Cariel. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Another great oh. intro. Thank you. <laughs> of course, look, at a bare minimum, I have to plug the article because I always will read when you write, but your summary of this, just as a, a documentary review, it was compelling enough that I was like, I have to see this. Okay. And I did my job. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I know uh, the headline, of course, uh, Andy Murray talking about Dunblane was a, a huge moment in the documentary because it's not something his childhood, his parents separating that he's opened up about much before. But even before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, as you watch this uh documentary this film I'll refer to it as a bunch of different things throughout this but just what were your feelings I suppose even before seeing it going into it knowing that Andy Murray has not been a guy who showed this sort of uh who's given this sort of access to the public before I mean before I I didn't know what to expect I I wouldn't even say I was that I mean I don't know my expectations weren't that high just because you know you've I've seen many documentaries. Some of them are great. Some of them are heavily kind of controlled by the subject. And although they they may be advertised as revealing and kind of open and emotional, they can be very sterile and 
you know, controlled. So I think, you know, actually seeing it, that was kind of what not even surprised me because uh, I guess it's Murray and, you know, he, he tends to be quite raw and quite emotional and, you know, his feelings are always kind of present. But it was striking how, kind of, as you said, you know, how raw it was and how, I don't know, it just, it was, that was in particular what kind of struck me about it. And for fans of Andy Murray, and I have been a lifelong fan, as our listeners I'm sure are well aware by now, but the scrutiny he has been under his entire career because, you know, for the majority of it, until he won that Wimbledon, there was, of course, a man from Great Britain hadn't won since Fred Perry did it. I think it was in the 1930s. Thankfully, I've forgotten the year by now. Um, But that's the sort of pressure, the sort of scrutiny he's lived under his whole career. And you're right, Andy Murray has never been one to shy away from that attention, you know, when he's had issues with the way the player councils deliberating or social issues that interact and political issues that interact with the sport of tennis. He is always one to speak his mind, but this sort of personal access to see just an athlete, not only rehab up close, but the struggle up close, the the moment that comes to mind immediately, of course, is when he explains the tears he has at the City Open after beating Marius Kopel so late into the night, 7-6 in the third, but that those tears came from a place not of success, but from a place of agony that he knew he couldn't continue at this rate. You know, I, I've seen the Federer-Nadal best match documentary wasn't something like this, and I just, I can't remember in any tennis related documentaries seeing that sort of intimate setting before oh absolutely not I mean, it was it was very raw and i think as you mentioned that was also that moment of the city open really struck me because you know i felt that you know the the documentary had a lot of access and actually i think part of the reason why um, it was so kind of open is because the the directors actually um as i think i wrote in the article her, Murray's wife, Kim Sears, her brother, uh, she is, uh, the director is his fiance. So I think that closeness is partly why he opened up a lot. And, and, and yeah, uh, just kind of those, the most intimate moments were when he was just speaking to the camera on his own or the, the other moment talking about Dumblain, which was just a, a voice note, you know, and I don't know, it was, it was, that was particularly striking to me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up and you beat me to it in the piece. You mentioned the fact that it was, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation of the last name, but Olivia Cappuccini, uh, the brother in, or the fiance of Scott Sears, who is obviously Kim Sears, Andy Murray's wife's brother, uh, who was able to be the director of this film. And yeah, you feel, because you mentioned in your article as well, the things such as uh, the shooting in Dunblane when he was a child at his school or his parents getting divorced, his brother leaving to go train all things he cites in the documentary uh you talk about in the article how even though he does bring them up in the documentary he doesn't do it on camera he does it via voice message because even though it was someone as intimate as his uh brother-in-law's wife there's still he you mentioned you quote him in the article that he still felt embarrassed about the moment and it wasn't something he had shared publicly before and so i think that speaks to the intimacy the seriousness of the moment and something that you're you know it's been said colloquially on tennis Twitter, but as a fan, it could bring you to tears. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, in, in kind of in general, I was, you know, as a British journalist, follow Murray 
you know, although I wasn't a newspaper writer during that period, still follow him, you know, very closely. And you see the whole, everything that happens in his career from the perspective of a journalist or as a fan, you know. So it was just, I think it was really interesting to kind of see that other other side and to see those in, see those intimate moments and see what really happened. You know, as, as you mentioned with the City Open, you know, when when it happened and he was kind of sobbing loudly <laughs> in his chair, everyone was kind of trying to figure out what had actually, you know, why he was crying. Was it because, was it happiness? Because he just won three really tight three setters in a row and, you know, was it, you know, sadness? And, you know, <laughs> and in, in reality, it was something even worse. And also, Another example, sorry to go on, but um, at the Australian Open um, this year, when he was going in for uh, to to tell the world, you know, what had actually, you know, that he, he probably was going to retire at Wimbledon, you know, before before he went into the press conference room, he was kind of sitting in his hotel, kind of trying to figure out, you know, sh- should I actually say this? Am I making the wrong decision? You know, he he called his. Uh, uh, psychologist or and just things like that uh, if uh, what you really i don't know it just completes kind of the story and it gives you a better understanding of both what happened and also him as a person yeah uh well a another thing we learned from this documentary you know you never have to apologize to me when you have a point to make we learned that andy murray never apologizes when he's got something to say he goes after his team uh and again it was the little tidbits such as that watching them you know watching him make his coaches do the sprints uh on the beach and just him critiquing their form they started cramping and he's laughing at them just those sort of moments that you can see offer him a a brief reprieve from all of the other stress that comes with an injury of this nature and I'm curious because you mentioned you know just you being a fan of tennis following this even before you were a journalist and you I think I can speak for both of us when we will follow tennis no matter what but in the conscious of maybe some American tennis fans Andy Murray being injured he just hasn't been as present in their mind over these past two years given you know the success of the other big four guys given and I'm not going to disrespect this podcast by saying it's a big three when we're talking about Andy Murray but uh, given the rise of the next gen players as well and all the other things going on in the ATP tour in you know the UK itself where Andy Murray has become such an icon for his success how have his struggles uh been you know monitored by the public what's the public consent you know has it been followed closely has his struggles with this injury been something that has been on the mind of all you know sports fans in the UK um I wouldn't say I wouldn't say so I mean the the journalists as I'm sure you know, kind of there's a a, a a prominent kind of group of journalists, British journalists that cover Murray. And, you know, during this period, there's been a kind of, you know, he is our biggest player. So, and, and actually, you, you, I'm sure you saw in the documentary, there was a, a period during his kind of recovery when he was like, well, I wish those guys would leave me alone and, and just report about Heather Watson or something. <laughs> but obviously that's not going to happen because he's Andy Murray. So, so there was, there's a lot of coverage. I don't think kind of the public was, you know, he's he's become very popular, as you said, but I don't know, tennis is still kind of, it's not that popular outside of Wimbledon and, you know, maybe sometimes the final days of a slam or whatever. So I, I think people who wanted to be aware were aware, definitely. But I don't know, it's, you know, you, you tended, it's funny, like you, you, 
read kind of comment sections of articles and you know would you know, when he wasn't present people would kind of just you know it's say he's finished or whatever and they kind of just assume that you know the story had run its course yeah, and the reason I wanted to ask that is because you look at Andy Murray throughout this film, and it starts in 2017 at that Wimbledon where he loses to Sam Query, and just something clearly isn't right, and to talk about the procedure he gets then, pulling out of that U.S. Open, coming back at the beginning of 2018, uh, monitors you know him from start uh, from there through 2019, his comeback at Queens, and then ultimately at Cincinnati is where it ends. And it feels like we were stolen. You know, he won an ATP title. It feels like you could have just extended that maybe like two more weeks and just thrown in like just a little video clip at the end. But um, again, the the reason I bring it up is because. You, you look at this, the, the struggle he just faces throughout this documentary. It's impossible to argue that what Andy Murray went through over the past two years is anything but just a terrible thing to imagine for yourself, the struggles that he went through. And yet what this documentary reveals is that the reason Andy Murray was able to put up with all of that, and you talk about this in your piece, is just simply because his love of playing the sport, his love of the stability that comes with him being a professional tennis player. Yeah, and actually, one of actually one of the on that one of the interesting things I found of uh, kind of watching it was seeing his kind of perspective change from. You know, when the injury first happened and he was at the top of his game, defending champion at Wimbledon, obviously everything was about winning and and nothing else. And through, through it, we saw kind of how all that happened to him changed his perspective and made him, you know, realise how much he loved tennis, how much, you know, it's not just about winning. And I don't know, I, 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 you see that a lot in tennis and... Where you know a player will go away, will get injured, you know, say like an American Sloane Stevens, they'll they'll get injured, they'll be away from the sport, they'll realize how much they loved it, they'll come back, you know, with their mind fresh and with a different perspective, and you don't often see it like in real time, kind of, and and that's one of the things that I don't know. I just I thought that was really nice to see, and he's been very since he's come back, he's talked a lot. And he's been very open about that and, and how kind of this is different. And you know, the, the Murray of today is, you know, approaches the sport differently. Yeah, and it was funny because they referred to or and they had the chance to interview some other players and influences in his life, obviously, throughout this and to get their perspective. And, you know, they brought in Djokovic, Rafa, Federer, who talk about how immensely talented he is and how that combined with his work ethic, his intensity uh, helped build him into the you know physical force that he was as a player. Amelie Moresmo describes him as a perfectionist and certainly that's part of the cause for why he, his emotions fluctuate so much on the court is because he demands such excellence of himself. Uh, but, you know, the fun part was then, uh, you, and, you know, I, I wanted to add one more. Brad Gilbert described him as a f- animal. And, I mean, I would probably be up there as well. That's when you think of Andy Murray, just a pest, just a guy who's everywhere. Um, but it was fun to see how that uh, that mentality influences him off of the court as well. He likes to be argumentative with his team. He likes to be competitive in, you know, whether it's an argument about a fact or just these little training things, whatever it is. And that's ultimately what you you can tell fueled him and just 
drove drove him throughout this entire up and down rehab process is just a desire to prove to himself that hey I can get back on the court. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, as as you said, it, the kind of the reason he's still playing is because of his single mindedness and his refusal to kind of give up. And even when he did, kind of com- completely thought it was over. You know, after. Washington, you know, after Australian Open, you know, he, he just has that discipline to to continually push himself and be that competitive player. And, and I should also, you mentioned the team and what I forgot to say earlier is um, it, it, another thing that was interesting to, to me was just the kind of how lonely tennis can be. You know, you, this isn't a team sport. You don't, when you get in, you know, when, say, a soccer player gets injured, they can go into the dressing room still and be around the teammates. Whereas in tennis, you you know you're you have these people around you who you employ, and if they're not the right people, then you know I imagine it could be very difficult to to do rehab to continue on. And I think we saw that you know as as you said earlier, kind of. He has a great rapport with his team, and they would they joke around a lot, and they they also you know he'd compete with them, and I think that's partly why, you know, having the right people around him is partly another reason why he's been able to, you know, continue and go go through such a long period of, you know, struggling and still <laughs> stay sane, I guess. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I'm really glad you bring that up because that was one of the big things that uh, you you know screamed throughout this podcast. You could just tell was that you're right that loneliness of being a tennis player. He talks about the routine, how he doesn't know what routine he would do every day without you know going to the gym, doing all the prehab, the workout, the rehab, all the different things that go into keeping your body in shape and maintaining your level of play. And yeah, the the co-stars of the documentary certainly are his wife Kim, who I want to talk about in a little bit but in terms of the te- the tennis team uh, and his family as well you know his his mom Judy who's infamous and such a great influence on the game as well as his brother Jamie uh, but his team you have Shane uh, the masseuse who of course they have some beautiful moments of hugging and holding hands and it's very intimate and fun uh, he has Slender Mark Bender who uh, is his physio and then Matt Little who he calls Trex uh, the physical trainer Jamie Delgado uh, his coach and you know you can just see how instrumental they are to his rehab process. And it helps when you're Andy Murray, you have three grand slams, two gold medals, a bunch of master's titles, plenty of money in your pocket to keep that team around you each and every day. But yes, just the comfort he takes in them. It's, you know, when throughout this offseason, when you see coaches and players separating and all of these new pairings, when you see a documentary like this, you see why those decisions of who a player keeps around him 
are that much more important because through the the easy times are easy, but it's the tough times. It's the man, I like I've tried to start up and stop again, you know, three, four, five, six times this year, and I'm just not healthy enough to play. That Andy Murray had that team, that support group with him. It's so important, and it's something I think we're going to see become even more important as this 2020s decade of tennis begins. And and, and I imagine kind of I, I, after watching the film, I spent some time imagining kind of the opposite. You know, imagine if he had gone through that in one of the many kind of dysfunctional coaching partnerships we've seen. You know, if they didn't really have his back and they, and the coaches were maybe, I don't know, it, it's a job that I can't imagine that it would have turned out quite as well as it has done in the end. Yeah, and you you mentioned that call he made to his uh, sports psychiatrist. I, I don't know if that's exactly the title, but the guy he talks through those sorts of things with, I think it was Brian English, uh, right before that press conference in Australia earlier this year. And, you know, him, he's that was the day he wanted to come out and explain, hey, it's really not feeling good. I, I think I'm really going to have to shut things down. But he didn't want to, and so he called Dr. English. He said, hey, you know, are we sure I have to do this? Like, what are we thinking? And, you know, and Dr. English is like, well, are you sure you want to do this? And they talk through all these things, and he calls Shane after as well. And just, you know, the other person, a, a big moment from this podcast was Miami 2018 at before this season began, you know, when he was going through his preseason, and he could just tell it really wasn't feeling good. And that brings up his wife, Kim, who plays a, a phenomenal, you know, just has a great role in this documentary, what she did to support him. And she talks about how Andy turned to her and said, hey, you know, I I really want to stop. Will you give me permission to stop? And she says, no, Andy, this is your decision. You know, it, it comes down to you. And that sort of moment, I mean... That, that's the sort of thing, again, you just don't get to see it because you never want – how are you ever going to tell a pro athlete when to stop their career? And it's just, again, pointing to the fact that he has this support group around him that are 100% into him, that whatever his decision is, they will be behind him. Uh, that's just as instrumental to Andy Murray's success as anything that you know physically he has gift-wise. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And um I guess on that as well, I think it was interesting actually to see how kind of indecisive he was. And uh, I, I, I guess that's another issue of this of this being an individual sport. You know, in, in a team sport, maybe the, you know, maybe someone above would make kind of a decision on an injury or whether you should do this or you should do that. Whereas it's all on him and... You know, of course, you can consult your the people around you, but they they shouldn't, and they don't make the decision. And I think we we saw a lot throughout that of him kind of agonizing with that. And as you said, I think it was very touching and poignant that kind of it would that they made it clear that you know it has to be you. And on the other hand, you know, you mentioned Judy. <laughs> One of my favorite moments was. Her, I can't remember at what point it came, but um, when at one of the moments when he was considering retiring, and they interviewed Judy, and she was she was like, no, that, "He's he's not done yet," you know. I, I think it, <laughs> I think it may have been after the Australian Open actually this year, and she was, and and it's actually funny because watching the the match, the Batista Agut match, it, it was funny seeing Judy and Jamie standing right next mm-hmm. to each other. The whole match, Jamie would just look 
in grief. You know, he looked devastated. I've, I've ne- you know, it was hard just to watch him. And then right next to him was Judy, who just spent the whole match just grinning. You know, as as Andy mm-hmm. fought back, and you know, she was just lo- she was loving it. And you know, she I think you know eventually you know they they know him. They know how much, as you said earlier, that how how much how competitive he is. How rarely he how he doesn't give up and. You know, I guess she knows her son and she sensed that eventually, you know, he was going to try until he couldn't anymore. Yeah. And to get to see that Australian Open match, you look back on it, it's it's crazy to think in that moment, you really did think it was over. And he played so well. Bautista Good obviously had a phenomenal season, uh, all things said and done. But after losing those first two sets, 6-4, to win the next two, 7-6, make it a five-set match after all the things he had been through with his hip, you almost felt like, okay, this is a, you know this is an acceptable way for it to happen. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, it, that this is the really fun part is we've talked about his competitiveness. You know, he sees Bob Bryan, who has a very similar hip operation, go back out on tour and have a monochrome of success all, you know, early on in his return. And just, you can see the competitive instincts in Andy. You're, you know, you mentioned what Judy Murray mentioned. He just, as much as his body said no, it's again, this is, it's a testament to the sport, the love of the game, the fact that because it's an individual sport, you really have to buy in because it's all on you. It's all your commitment. And just that competitive spirit, his desire to get back on the court. He sees Bob Bryan have a successful surgery to money and he's like, I can do this too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah it's it's just it's crazy and yeah it's 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 hard i guess it's hard to imagine how many players would be in that situation and have that you know reaction it definitely does seem special and different and you know kind of the the driving kind of reason why he's been able to have so much success in his career you know not just with this but winning his slams and you know going through the periods where he didn't win yet still persevering and yeah that's that's Andy Murray right Absolutely. It's why he was such a great champion. And the fun part about this documentary, we've talked a lot about the serious stuff, but there were also some great, just, you know, lighthearted moments. Andy, when I think it was, you know, November, October, September ish, 2018, when he goes and works with Bill Knowles in the U.S. And, you know, at one point they're breakdancing and they're doing gymnastics. And, like, I was just watching Andy Murray breakdance. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what am I seeing? And so, I mean, this film has it all. And just, I guess, you know, you're looking at the takeaways from Andy Murray. Again, the fact that the film ends with him playing his first, you know, he wins the Queens doubles title. And then uh, he's about to play his first singles match in Cincinnati. Now, we know since that moment uh, there has been more, you know, he's had even more success. He won a title on his comeback route. He has played multiple matches now, a month of matches. And I guess as you set the scene looking forward into the 2020s, because you have to imagine Roger Federer probably has to retire at some point this decade. Rafa Djokovic, uh, certainly, I mean, maybe not with Rafa, but you have to imagine the best tennis is behind them. And then there's Andy Murray. And I guess my question to you is, this seemed to be uh, the the takeaway from the film is that at this point, it, everything's gravy for him, right? 
um yeah so so i mean yeah i i'm if you're asking like what what i expect from here um i don't know it's it's funny enough i i spoke we his um physio matt, matt little spoke recently and it was clear that they took a lot from antwerp and took a lot from the fact that he was able to play at the level he did and do it obviously over a week and i know it's 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 definitely the big question is how how can what level he can reach what he can do consistently you know he's moving very well and you know, he's it's he's far beyond what any of us or he really expected so that everything is going well and the question is kind of whether it will continue on that route yeah. Uh, there was a little like footnote. He in his prime had reached seven point six meters per second as a speed uh, during the hip injury. He was he had lost a second on that speed. Then he, once he got the replacement, he was back up to six point nine meters per second. And yeah, that's the sort of thing. It's like even if he's not going to get all the way back to that seven point six, even to just see Andy Murray out there competing again, healthy, the reception he's gotten from other players, it's it's good for our sport. I mean, this is a guy who's the two time defending gold medal champion in singles and we have an olympic year coming up this year uh, you know we've seen a del potro magical run at the olympics would i be all in on another murray magical run you betcha yeah and i should add that you know mentioned the, phys- the physio he actually he talked about that and he said during antwerp um andy was even kind of up to his level of old even recording some of his faster sprints obviously it's not you know tennis is more than just sprinting it's move it's changing directions and moving in every bloody direction in the world but um <laughs> yeah I, I think there is a that's like from his camp at, at least i think there's a lot of optimism and i think rightly so you know he's you know at this point his hip is by his by what their a lot of their kind of descriptions his hip is actually the healthiest part of his body you know it's everything else that kind of has to kind of accommodate this new you know uh, this new metal hip and you know as, as we know in tennis you know different muscles when there's an injury or when something's different different muscles comp- compensate and you know and so, so yeah I, I think there's a lot of hope and yeah it, it would be great to you know what any kind of run and to see him facing off against the big three again and to see kind of you know, it feels like this may be like the final year where we could possibly have, you know, those four players, you know, facing off against each other. And even if he's not at their level, just to see him across the net against them, I think would be, and not being, say, destroyed as he, he was at the Australian Open this year when he practiced with Novak Djokovic and Djokovic won like, it was, I can't remember the score, it was like one in love or something. Uh, just to see him back to that, I think that would be, you know, a triumph. Certainly. And uh, I won't bait you into asking whether you think it's a big three or a big four, but I will ask you this. Uh, and I, I think, it, I think it's both. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's fair. I think that's also, you know, some answers do require nuance. And there was certainly a period where you could not deny just the Grand Slam semifinals, finals, appearances from Andy Murray, as well as with those other guys, the Masters titles he was able to win. The fact that other than Djokovic, uh, Nadal, and Federer, there's only one guy who's held the number one rankings in the 2010s, and that's Andy Murray. Uh, All of those things certainly mean something. But I will, I'll ask this final question on the documentary for you. If you are, Roger Ebert or you are a Rotten Tomatoes fan and you are to give this score and you can pick either out of a hundred or out of a five star rating system, what would you give this documentary? Eight eighty eight out of a hundred. Eighty so so B plus. Eighty eight. I'd say kind of an A ish. I don't I, I mean I think it was very good. As as you said, I think I mean I think you said at the ending, you know, there was this huge emotional event. Um, at Antwerp that just that wasn't in it and I think you know that would have I think taken it further just to see the because it wasn't just winning a title it was kind of drag you know killing himself and against Vavrinka and of, of all people who they both injured you know it, at the 2017 French Open semi-final that was when they both kind of killed their bodies so that was a huge full circle moment and I feel like it, the, that was the one thing that I, that took away from not took away but that could have been improved but aside from that it was great I thought yeah the only thing I would have added more of and I think that 88 to 92 range is about right is I wanted more tennis I want to see Andy missing six backhands in a row not because that brings me joy but just because I, I would like to see what that struggle looks like on the tennis court I, I agree about come to think of it yeah because they showed for example, or in in the Moratoglu Academy, or mm-hmm. when he, or in Miami when he faced Vadasco, and he said it it was not. I don't think he said it in the documentary, but afterwards he said, you know, he was playing horribly. He he looked horrible on the court. So yeah, you're right. Just to see him, just how maybe slow, how painful, how this or that. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, because they showed so much of him rehabbing and in the pool and on the Versa climber doing weights, biking, and that really helped contextualize what a rehab looks like. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Just to see, I want to know what does it look like Andy Murray struggling side to side? You got bits and pieces, uh, but just the the extended thing. And then, all right, my last question for you, then I swear I'll let you go because I know it's late where you are. This was a phenomenal documentary. This felt like one that had to be made, this sort of comeback. And there are a lot of fun comebacks going on uh, heading into 2020. So there's a couple different ways uh, I suppose you could take this question. But in your mind, the next tennis documentary that you think needs to be made will cover what topic? Oh, my God. That's um... – hmm. It's a fun one to end on because there's a lot. I'll tell mine would be, and this is a very personal to me, but 2010's college tennis was all USC versus UVA. And when it got good, I mean, it was the peak of college tennis. They played this 4-3 match in 2011 in the NCAA finals. That just kind of was the culmination of the two programs rise and USC toppling. And then USC, UVA beats them in the 2013. And I could go on and on. I'm ready to make this doc is what I'm telling you. Um, but that's one for me. I mean... My, oh, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Go for it. Uh, <laughs> mine may be a bit niche. I'd, I'd like to see a documentary on Benoit Pair. Just his life. Just his <laughs> fabulous, fantastic life that he clearly enjoys so much and <laughs> gets so much joy out of. 
<laughs> nominated for the best animated feature, Benoit Pair, The Life. And best um, comedy, yeah, I think. It's... <laughs> no, that would be a good I'd watch that. I feel like that could also just be called his Instagram feed. Because I feel like we get a good, yeah, you just kind of make that into a film, add some music. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there, right? Uh, inevitably... The big three, big four documentary will be made. It's just not over yet. Um, but that, you know, I'm sure the rights for that have already been incorporated when you Google in Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Murray, Networths, because uh, that'll that'll be the big sell. Um, but all right, Tabani, it, it's it's the author. Oh, sorry. Any final thoughts? Oh no, I'm just gonna say, you know, speaking seriously, I, I'd guess the kind of obvious thing is Serena, just because something you know that close up something that i don't know raw i i think serena's kind of 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 those top players probably the most kind of mysterious the one who you don't know as much about and you'd love to know the what happens behind the scenes in certain moments of her career i think yeah i'd say that's something but Oh, certainly. Her and Venus. I mean, all of it. I mean, I think Sharapova, given what's gone on the last three years, is a fascinating tale. Uh, there's. I mean, I would watch. I would watch forty five minutes on Ostapenko. Thus far. <laughs> yeah. So the, the great yeah, thing about our sport is that there are there are so many great stories that would you'd love to see more. Absolutely, that's what makes tennis so great. But you know, it is December, so I, before we wrap, I want to ask: What are you up to? You know, what what do you do when you have four weeks to step away from the game, if that? Um, I mean, normally just like live, sleep, uh, relax, <laughs> hang out with friends. Uh, but I mean, as as you know, I I just started a new job, so I'm tr- <laughs> I've been working. <laughs> um, I've been kind of like just doing writing about other sports trying to do different things trying to be more than just about tennis even though life could be lovely if it was just tennis <laughs> but yeah so I, I don't know aside from that just hanging out going to art gallery sometime I don't know it's it's London there's a lot so I was just I I'll go, go on no, as you say, I like it. Uh, uh, then give me your your biggest non tennis sports story right now in the life of Tumani Cariel. Non tennis? Oh, yeah, non tennis. I mean, as you know, it would not a sports story. It would be Arsenal being horrible at football. <laughs> That's what I was getting towards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they just you know, as we're speaking, they just lost you know a horrible home game to. Brighton, a, te- a team that they should not be losing to at home. So, <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, your Arsenal is my Detroit Lions. I understand. I I feel like Arsenal might even be better. Um, so it's yeah, no, but you know, if at any t- p- time during this month you want to talk a little more tennis, uh, you know where to find me. And I know I speak for our listeners tomorrow when we say thank you for all you did in 2019, uh, and we look forward to seeing what you have in store for us in 2020. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man, and and to you. I, I'm looking forward to hearing more and more podcasts. Oh, of course. Hopefully, as you say, hopefully we'll get to run into each other outside of Cincinnati. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, take care, Tumani, and thanks again. See you. Thank you.
Hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with the Guardians' Tumani Cariel talking about Andy Murray resurfacing. Again, if you listeners want to check that documentary out, unfortunately, you do need an Amazon account, but that is where it's being streamed on Amazon.com, at least in the U.S. I apologize to those of our listeners outside of the U.S. I'm not exactly sure where you can find it, but that's the beauty of 2019, a little Google search, and I'm sure you can find the documentary available to you. Uh, Again, huge thank you to Tumani one of our favorites at Cracked Rackets whose work at the Guardian you can cover and as he mentioned it's not just tennis with him if you're a football fan and I mean that in the American terms of soccer not uh, football uh, you know go check out his work there as well and support him however you can the other thing I gotta mention before we wrap this podcast up uh, as you listeners know right now we have a new sponsor someone we are very proud uh, to be joining teams with our friends at Aerobar it is the newest tennis specific energy bar to help keep you ready and able to compete on the court. Uh, look, we all need to be fueled. I mean, the best athletes require the best fuel. You think Roger Federer's putting Reese's in his body? God, I hope so. What if Roger Federer just like exclusively Reese's? Like his left calf is Reese's, his right calf is Snicker. I mean, his body is 100% Swiss chocolate. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, look, that's not the recipe. People need to be properly nutritioned. Only the, I think it was Rafa who, like, through 25, could just eat loads of junk fuel. If you think you're Rafa, go for it. But if you're the rest of us who need that extra boost, go check out our friends at Aerobar. Seriously, their delicious uh, honey cinnamon oat or their delicious chocolate chip bars will have you properly fueled. More potassium in each bar than a banana. You're not going to look foolish bringing them out of your bag. You're going to look legit because it's not going to melt everywhere. High melting point chocolate as well. Andrew Golub, when he came out. He mentioned that. Um, and even the best part, our friends there, they're giving us a discount. If you listen to this podcast, you want to go buy these bars, uh, you place your order, type in the promo code CRACKED30. Again, that's C-R-A-C-K-E-D-3030, not the number, uh, not the letters. Excuse me. It is the number. So again, CRACKED30. Notice how I confuse you as I'm going to try and say it. So I'll say it one more time. CRACKED30. That's cracked Three zero, and no, that's not a euphemism. That is the promo code to go get yourself a set of Aero Bars. The coolest part about Aero Bar, a free listener giveaway. Uh, it, even beyond, you don't want to try the Aero Bars, but you want a shot at winning a signed. And I, by the way, I very much recommend you go try them. But you want a shot at winning a free uh, signed John Isner racket, which they were kind enough to provide us. The way you enter into that contest, go leave this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the Great Shot podcast a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave a five-star rating as well. If you want your name to be entered into the contest multiple times, leave a review on all three podcasts. The max you can be entered, uh, you know, the, the amount of ratings, you the reviews you leave is the amount of times your name will be entered into the competition. So go sign up there. Hudson Hatfield off to a strong start. I think he might already be three posts deep, guys. So again, get those names, get those reviews up there while you can. If you missed anything else from the tennis world, I know it's the end of the year, but come on, you don't want to be caught out up to date. You got to go check out our website, Cracked Off Date. Excuse me, you, you don't want to be out of the loop. Go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com, for the more immediate updates Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's this podcast, it's uh, the Great Shot Podcast, where we're continuing our best of the decade series, looking at the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the past 10 years of tennis. Our Cracked Interviews podcast, where our College Contender Series is full steam ahead. We've interviewed the t- the coaches from the teams ranked 10 through 6 on the men's side to preview their teams as we get ready for the 2020 dual match season. 
And again, uh, you know, go sign up, leave a rating review on all three of these podcasts so you can get yourself in that Arrow Bar free uh, signed John Racket uh, giveaway competition. Have to give a shout out to our super producers, Max Figner and Daniel Westoff. As you can tell, I'm a little wordy tonight, and I'm a little wordy all the time. And thanks to the f- job they do, they make me sound somewhat organized. So huge shout out to them as always. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host Tumani Cariol of The Guardian, for our super producers, Max Figner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire team at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Kruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.